kids with us because Maggie's for children doesn't start until September 13th, and that, uh, I apologize for not being more widely known, uh, but, you know, the great thing about Maggie's is kids like it too, so we're going to find a little bit of that today, this morning, and uh, I want to kind of model some of that for you. One of the big hopes we have uh, is this, that we would start to catechize our kids. Um, I know that's like a radical idea today, but just hear me out, okay? Um, little kids especially are like sponges. They love to memorize things. They love to take on all kinds of information. They like to build the grammar. They like to talk. I don't know if you've noticed that, but little kids, little kids love to talk. And they also love games, right? So if you basically make a game, they will play it forever. It's with blue in the face. And, uh, and memorizing things tends to have that kind of game mentality. Um, it's like, if you, if you have me memorize something, you make a game that I will memorize all kinds of stuff. And uh, it's kind of amazing. I uh, work at three homeschool or seven kids. Point is, you know, we we uh, for a very long time we're teaching our children to memorize Shakespearean sonnets, and it was just like so easy, and they just and they remember it now. It was like constantly bringing it back to you. Um, and when we have them memorize catechism question answers, they remember them perfectly. The only problem is we come up with new versions of catechism since, and they remember the old version just like I do, and so it's all turned off. But there's value in this. What's the value of it? Value is just like memorizing scripture. Whatever words, this is really key, whatever words, whatever phrases, whatever ideas are given to you in childhood um, tend to stick with you, right? I mean, there are things that my grandparents said to me when I was a little kid that stuck with me for little phrases I memorized, little things that just kind of stuck out. Um, so it's a really good practice. I actually think. You know, the question and answer catechisms were made for children um, This This catechism is actually made for adults, and it's made to be adapted at will for children. Um, and this first section is really good. Good for that. But first, um, let's pray. The Lord be with you. Let's try it again. The Lord be with you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast, blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Okay. Get ready. We're going to learn a question and question answer. Ready? All of you. Okay. <laughs> question two on page 23. This is really great. What is the gospel? You can read it if you want. later I'll ask you What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God loves the world and offers salvation from sin through his son Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God loves the world and offers salvation from sin. Now, one of the things you'll notice about catechisms, they've got a certain meter to them. Do you notice that? The gospel is the good news that God loves the world and offers salvation from sin through His Son, Jesus Christ. Um, just a bit as we, as we go forward in this, um, there are lots of different ideas as to what the gospel is. In fact, this is one of the, it's, it's been one of the hallmark of Christian troubles is people disagreeing as to what the gospel is. 
ribs, like, why would they do this? To be reminded as you walk past that pile of bones every day, someday my bones will be added to that pile. To await the resurrection of the dead. Um, this was the idea behind Christian catacombs in the first few centuries. If a Christian dies, they get buried far underground. Um, this was often where churches were worshiping, was right in those places, in the deep catacombs. If you've ever been to Rome and you've been down in the catacombs, or been to, been to Paris and been down in the catacombs of Paris, by the way. Um, you've seen all this. In fact, most medieval cathedrals are built up, up on top of those ancient catacombs. Um, this for Christian wants to remember the reality, not only that, um, that I worship as part of a communion of saints, but also that um, I live as part of a communion of saints, but also that I will die as a this remembrance of death is, is very important. Uh, but, but why do we remember it? Well, is going to talk about this in a second. It's really simple. You remember the words of Paul. It is in dying that we have life. Um, this, is the, this is the gospel. That, that in order to enter into the life of salvation, we must first die. Well, how does this happen to most of us? It's a wonderful. Probably get ahead of myself. But it happens in baptism, right? You're buried with Christ in his death, as Paul was around and says. Raised with Christ in life. So, in thinking about the gospel, you actually have to think about that. It's really important. Most people don't think about it. Um, for many Christians today, the gospel is simply like this. You can have a better life with Jesus at the end. I'm just going to say, that's not the gospel. <laughs> the gospel is life through death and being joined to the death of Jesus. Um, to be crucified with Christ. Um, and, and this is what that salvation consists in. So this is really key. Salvation doesn't simply mean the Christian religion. That you uh, get to go to heaven and die and enjoy eternal blessedness and play hard and look through a glass filled ceiling and you know, enjoy the view from that's not the gospel. The gospel is a salvation from sin through Jesus Christ, to be joined to Jesus Christ. Okay. Let me ask the next one. Let's ask that question again. How, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God loves the world and offers salvation from sin through His Son, Jesus Christ. How does sin affect you? Sin alienates me from God, my neighbor, God's good creation, Myself. Apart from Christ, I'm hopeless, guilty, lost, helpless, and walking away with death. It's another good one for, for kids to remember. Um, you know, by the way, this is a wonderful tool. If you ever find your kids you know, uh, doing something they shouldn't be doing, you say, How does sin affect you? And then they give the answer Sin alienates you from God and enables you to creation myself. It's a reminder that what they're facing kind of so great for children. What they're facing is not the ire of their parents. They're not facing our disappointment and the shame we want to eat on. What are they facing? This, this disruption within themselves. This disruption from creation. This alienation. It's so important for us to remember that. Well, think about it. You, know? you remember the old story. Genesis 3. What happens in Genesis 3? 
so Eve eats of the fruit, right? She finds it pleasing and good to the eyes, and, and oh, this will be nice. But what does she what does she partly forget? What did God say? Keep in mind, Adam says this last bone my bone and flesh my blood is true. 
Do they close on this one? They're naked. And they're not ashamed. And what happens after that? They notice that they're naked. And what do they do? They sew big leaves together. <laughs> now, you know, big leaves is big. It's really big. And you can, you, I guess you can stitch it into all sorts of things. But, but that's what they do. They, they cover themselves. Because they're ashamed. Are they ashamed of something bad? No. What are they ashamed of? Something good, something very good. Right? God doesn't say, he, he makes man his image, and they look him and they create him. What does he say? It's good. No, he says, it's very good. It's very good. And they look at each other. That has not changed when they're made in the image of God. That has not changed. Let's be very clear about that. The image of God is not obliterated in the fall. We're alienated from it. We don't perceive it as we should. There's brokenness there. So they experience alienation from each other. They also experience alienation from their neighbor, meaning what happens in the curse. They don't get to live in the garden anymore. And, and, and there's something about that that, that, that now we could have had this let's just say kind of utopian reality, right? Where, where if they had any children, and if they had generations in the garden, and if they avoided, if they avoided the, the curse of sin, you get it? No. No, no. It was muted. Sorry. We're good now. All right. Okay. So that's, that's where we're going, right? We see that there's, there's alienation between the neighbors. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, those of you know this. I mean, what is in your backyard most likely, unless you live in the Midwest, but here in Texas, what is between you and your neighbor? A fence. Why is that fence there? Well, there's that old saying. I think it's like Teddy Roosevelt or somebody, right? Good fences make good neighbors. Okay. Why? Because we live in a fallen creation. We live in a fallen world. We experience this disruption between our neighbors. If we did not, if we did not have sin, what would we have? No fences. Right? Wouldn't be a problem. Right? We're also alienated from God's good creation. One of the curses that, that Adam receives is this curse that, that he's now going to have to work in the creation by the, by the sweat of his brow, He's going to have to be um, uh, a laborer. It's going to be hard work in creation. He's going to have to, to uh, put forth all that effort. Why? Because he doesn't actually live in harmony with creation. He has this kind of, there's a disruption there, and he's going to work hard. Go for it. Well, so, so let's, let's, let's take that back a bit. Um, their original relationship with creation is not actually that of just sort of enjoying it. There's, there's something more going on. Um, and I would, I would categorize it this way. They experience glory in creation. So there's a kind of mastery over creation that they have, which means what? Something like this. I want a banana. Oh, look, a banana tree. I'll eat the banana. And isn't that awesome? Like, I, I just eat. Right? I, there's mastery over creation. There's mastery even over the animals. Uh, this, is, this is actually shown in Scripture by Adam naming the animals. Right? Um, and so his relationship with creation is that, of, is that of a kind of mastery. It's that of glory. 
after, what is he? He's kind of like a slave to creation in a certain sense. Um, and this is important for us to see. I mean, listen, if you've ever had a house, right, you know this. What's, what's it like to own a house? It's a kind of slavery. Let's just be honest about it, right? I mean, the house doesn't repair itself when something goes wrong. If there are plumbing issues, what do you have to do? You have to fix them. Or you have to pay somebody to fix them, right? If there's a leak in the ceiling, what do you have to do? You have to fix it. Like, it's, it's a kind of slavery. It doesn't just work the way it should. Do you see this? Like, this is that alienation within creation. And it happens all over the place. Okay. We also experience alienation in ourselves. Um, this al- sin alienates me from myself. If you want to know what this looks like, just look at Romans 7, right? Paul is going on this long, long, long tear about how much dissonance he faces in his own life. He finds it to be a law that sin is working in his members. He finds it to be just the case that the thing he wants to do, he can't do. Why can't he do it? Because sin is dwelling in him. And we all face this, this dissonance. Um, we, we know what the opposite of this looks like. Or at least we think we know. What's it something like? It's something like integrity, right? Um, being one person instead of two or three. We, we know that we often, even though we're not diagnosed as it, like having multiple personalities, there's, there's a kind of multiple, multiple personality thing going on in us, right? And we know that we don't always get the one we want. Sometimes we, have, we are captive to this other self. Okay. Um, that's that kind of alienation. And apart from God, what are we? Hopeless. I mean, the biblical definition of being hopeless is that you're tossed around by life. Tossed around by everything that happens to you. You're not set firmly. Okay. It doesn't mean that you, think things are gonna get, that you don't think things are going to get better. It means that, you, that little things happen, big things happen in life, and you're tossed around by it. Sound familiar? It should, right? I mean, it's, it's everything from you get an envelope in the mail and your heart sinks just by looking at the envelope, right? It's a bill you can't pay. It's a letter from so-and-so. It's, it's a whatever it might be. Um, it's that card from a distant relative that you have a bad relationship with, but every year on your birthday they send you a card and make you feel bad about not wanting the card, right? You see what I'm talking about? This is awful. It's an awful thing. Um, you, get, you get tossed around. You feel like everything's going to go bad, like this isn't going to work. You feel the fear, right? Um, and, and I say this as somebody who's fought you know, chronic anxiety for most of my life. Um, this is awful. It's just awful. Um, guilt. How do you, what, does it, what does it feel like to feel guilty? We're talking about the bad. We're talking about the opposite of the gospel here, right? Okay. What does it feel like to feel guilty? Do you feel like you can repair what's gone wrong? No. Remember being a little kid and you broke something that was beloved by your parents. I broke a Christmas ornament once, and my parents still think that the dog hit the tree and that it fell off. Okay. How does it feel? Just think about it. 
Can you fix it? No. Can you replace it? No. I mean, my kids break dishes all the time, and they're like, I'll pay for it. You can't afford it. Okay? You can't. Um, it's, it's guilt. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sorry replacement for being able to do anything about it. Right? But it's all we can do because we're held in it. Okay? Um, lost. I mean, how does it feel to be lost in, in, on a street or in a city? To not know where you are? What does it mean to be lost? Does it not mean that you, you can't locate yourself within creation properly? Isn't that what it means? You don't know where you are or why you're there or where you're going. You don't know. You're lost. Okay. Um, helpless. Like, it's like this. I would be doing a lot better if I had some help. But I, I don't know who can help me and I don't know how they could help me. I don't know. That's what, it, that's what it's like to be helpless. Think about a little baby who's helpless, right? We've got a little baby in our house. Without us, she would die. <laughs> okay? Just straight up. And without us for even an hour, she thinks she's going to die. <laughs> right? It's this, it's this hopelessness. I will never forget. I tell the story often in catechesis. Um, when I was, uh, this was probably about 10 years ago, uh, my son was two, and uh, I was grilling out back for dinner. And all of a sudden, from inside the house, I hear this just wailing and crying, and I know it's my son. I know, I know what's going on. And I go inside, and I see this trail of blood from the kitchen all the way back into the master bedroom. On these wood floors, you know, it's just, it's just blood everywhere. And and I look at Ella, and she says, go get your son. <laughs> and what had happened is she dropped a knife on his foot. And, and it, it, didn't, it didn't hurt him that badly, but it was, it was enough to, like, get something bleeding, right? And I look, and I go back to the bedroom, and he is, keep in mind first, his first thing, his first idea in his mind was to run. And he left this trail of blood behind him. And I look down at my two-year-old son, and he's looking up at me with these big brown eyes, and, and the thing I will never forget is he couldn't form a sentence to describe what was happening, but he looked up at me with this, and I, what I knew he was asking was, am I going to die? You know, and we're all like that, aren't we? We're just, we're just one step away from being in that place where we say, I don't think I'm going to make it. I, I don't know how this is going to work. Um, and that, that's what it means to walk in the way of death. Um, that's bad news. Would you not agree? And that everybody experiences this. And, and even, if you, even if you think life is great, right, life is fantastic, my life is really good, I can't imagine it being better, well, let me ask you. Do you still experience dissatisfaction? Yes. Right? I've known people who have untold riches and they always look and they say, somebody's got it better than me. There's always somebody. There's always somebody. I mean, I knew a guy uh, who was the CEO of the water company. He was a member of our parish, and he was a really wonderful guy. And, and, but but he, would, he would always say, you know, uh, I've, I've done really well in this life, and I've got a lot of, a lot of privileges other people haven't had, and I've had a great life. Um, but I can always look and find somebody who's done just a little bit better than me. And, and he's like, I have to try to be thankful in the midst of that. Okay? So, so there's 
there's never a, there's never a point where it doesn't get better, where it gets better. Um, question number four. Can we turn to that one on the next page, 24? I, one of the things I love about catechesis is we get to sit with really awful ideas for like 20, 30 minutes. Like maybe a whole, maybe a whole session. The fact is we might not even get to the gospel today. Like we might just talk about death for two weeks and sin. And that's okay. I'm totally fine with that. Why? Because if you don't know what the problem is and you don't have a clue what the problem is, then how can you understand how great the salvation is? So what is the way of death? The way of death is a life without God's love and Holy Spirit, a life controlled by things that cannot bring me eternal joy, leading only to darkness, misery, and eternal condemnation. Um, one of the early Christian catechisms, which I would actually say um, is one of the most ancient documents we have in the church, is this thing called the Didache. And the Didache lays before you, and it's wonderful, wonderful reading, a way of life and a way of death. Um, and so Christian catechisms have often followed this format, although we didn't actually, we knew the Didache had existed, but we didn't know what it was until only the last hundred years or so. But, but it is to say that, that before you is this way of life and this way of death. Um, and the way of death is a life. Okay, so we have to say that. It's not to say you're dead. It's to say that this way of death is a life. But what kind of life is it? It's about the quality of that life. Is a life without God's love. Now, let's, let's say this. Doesn't God love everyone? Come on, you can answer. Yes, okay, yes. Let's say that very strongly. God loves everyone. But do you experience that all the time? Do you live like that all the time? And you might say, well, no, I don't. Okay, that's what it's like. Um, to live without God's love. To live without God's Holy Spirit. Okay. And this is the thing that, that uh, I, I feel the need to say because most people don't, don't often think about it. Uh, I had a really wonderful mentor when I was ordained and even before that, uh, when I was first ordained. And uh, he had gotten a PhD in theology at Keeble College in Oxford. And uh, he, would, he would often say, you know, where is Jesus to people? And they would say, he's in my heart. And, and this, this wonderful guy, he would say, no, he isn't. Because what did he want to say? He said, no, the Holy Spirit is in you. And Jesus Christ is the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit is in you. Because he always wanted to emphasize this life of the Holy Spirit. Go ahead. That he hates Esau? Um, there, there are biblical words that, um, you know, you're, you're making reference to this, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Um, hate's a little, more ac- a little more active, right? It's like, I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to work against you. Now, this is really important. Does love mean that I will always work in someone's favor as they want? No, in fact, it doesn't mean that at all. Sometimes what love means is that I'm going to actually actively work against you. I'm going to oppose you. Do you agree with that? Like, think about it. I've, I've known people through the years who've had children who are addicts or spouses who are addicts. Okay? Um, what does love look like? 
saying, let me make you a cocktail. Is that love? Not at all. It actually looks like when you are ready to get help, I will be the first one to help you. But until then, I'm going to make your life difficult. More difficult than it is. And, and there's, a kind of, there's a kind of hatred. But, but I want you to see this because we often forget the story and we lose the thread. What happens to Esau? Do you remember? Yeah. Well, Jacob goes off into a distant land. He goes into the land of his, of his, of his grandfather. And there God blesses him, right? Greatly. God also blesses Esau. He becomes a nation, Edom. Um, this is very clear when they meet each other in this wonderful scene when they, when they see each other and they, and they actually find forgiveness in the midst of all this, right? Um, there's a, there's a part, of the, part of the struggle here is that um, God's people, when they are obedient and when they seek after him, find blessing. And those who don't find difficulty, right? And that's a kind of hatred, isn't there? There's a kind of like, um, we experience God's judgment in that way. Um, and I think there's a way in which we can say that, that, um, that God loves all people um, and yet also allows them to face the, the very real consequences of their actions, right? I mean, let me ask you this. Does God love the guy that jumps off a 40-story building? Yes. Just like I love my children who climb on the back of my couch and fall and hurt themselves. I'm not any less of a loving father because I don't go grab them and put them on firm ground. Does that make sense? Like I let them bear the consequences of their actions all the time because I'm a good dad. I think so, right? And I, and I actually believe that natural consequences exist and that I want them to experience them. That doesn't make me a hatred-filled person, right? Um, it means that I'm not going to go and rescue my kids all the time. Um, I'm probably getting into, into semantics at this point, but, but you see what's going on is that um, Scripture's not always kind of like, eh, God hates people, so let's just leave it at that. Like, well, you've got you to qualify some things, right? You've got to go look and see what happens. Um, Esau's made a great nation. Um, are, they, are they God's chosen people? No, they're not. Um, however, is the gospel for all nations? including the Edomites, insofar as they still exist? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's this, it's really important that we say this, um, that when we, when we find ourselves in opposition to God's will and when we oppose God's will, what do we become? We become his enemies. And what does God tell us to do for our enemies? Two things. You know what they are. To pray for our enemies and also what? Love them. Okay? You see what's going on? Does that mean give them everything they want? No. Okay, do you see what's going on here? So there's a kind of way that we do this. Um, uh, it, um, it also means turning aside and also, uh, you know, think about well, what happened between Jacob and Esau. I know we're getting way off here, but this is important. Think about it. Esau does what? 
He sells his birthright for a mess of pottage, is what it's all referred to as. Because he's so hungry, he comes in from the field, he's very hungry, and he wants to eat. And, and Jacob says, sell me your birthright for this, for this soup. And he does. He thinks so little of God's blessing that he's willing to sell it for soup. And God doesn't come in and say, oh, you know, you really screwed up, Esau. Let's try to make it better, okay? Like, okay, buddy, like, you know, I know you didn't get what you wanted, and, and, but let's try to make it all better. No. Like, this is, a, this is the case in my house all the time. I tell my kids, if you don't eat your dinner, and you don't at least try a little bit of everything, then what? There's not going to be pie for you. There's not going to be ice cream for you, right? That's not going to happen. And they're like, oh! Don't you love me? Yes, I love you. Go ahead. I I really can't hear you. I'm sorry. You might you can just pull your mask if you want and talk to me. I know you're breaking Baylor protocol, and Linda Livingston will probably find out. Yeah, I mean, people like St. Augustine speak of uh, evil as a privation, right? You, you, it's not actually actively doing something that's evil. It's, it's holding back the good, right? And, and we do this all the time. Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot of ways to talk about it. And I don't actually think they're all semantic kind of things. A lot of this is, is getting to the heart of this. Like, does God actively seek the destruction of evil people? Right? Or are they bearing natural consequences for what happened, for what they did? I, mean, I think these are, really, these are really big, deep questions. And by the way, like, uh, very, very bright, intelligent people struggle with this. I struggle with it. Right? Um, and in fact, one of the things that you have to struggle with is this question of like, why do bad things happen to good people? Like, why do bad things happen to innocent people? How is this possible if God loves everyone? Right? And I think when we get back to this and we get back to the answer here, um, we say this, there's a way of death here, right? And, and this isn't just for me, right? It's, it's for all of creation, for all humanity. We face this. Um, and, and we're either walking in the way of death or we're walking in the way of life. Um, and this is essential Christian catechesis. But, but let, me get, let me get down to it, okay? Um, a life controlled by things that cannot bring me eternal joy. I mean, do we find this in life that we're often controlled by things that don't bring us any joy at all? How many of you have had a job that you absolutely hate? A few of you. Well, well done. Okay, you've done well. Uh, I noticed that the two members of the military raised their arms, and uh, that's, that's interesting and always revealing. Actually, all three of you, uh, I think. <laughs> and and, and you just, there are things you just don't like, right? You just hate it, and you don't want to do it. And you don't want to get up in the morning. You don't want to go. And, you, and yet you're controlled by it. Um, and it leads to darkness. I mean, uh, over your life, you'll just note that there are dark times, like really dark times where it's just not going well and, and it's a mess. Um, misery. Eternal condemnation. Um, go ahead. Can you, can, can you stand up, pull your mask, and yeah.
And this is what? Yeah, I know. Yeah, you think that, right? Like, okay, so what do you do with the person who, who is just walking in this horrifically evil way and yet they feel happy or they think like everything's going well? Okay. Uh, first answer is, I'm going to call them on that. I've known people through the years who are, who are just kidding themselves. They're in total denial about how bad things are. Right? We know this. They're in total denial. They will tell you, like, it's like this. You see them in casuals. How are things going? Oh, it's great. It's so great. My life is so good. And they're a little enthusiastic. Why? They believe it. Let's just say that. they really do believe it. But there's some denial involved here, too. Because the moment you press, it's like, well, things are not so great. Okay. It's not just that, though. I, listen, I mean, Socrates is the first one to say, the unexamined life isn't worth living, and a lot of people think they're having a good life just because they haven't examined it. We can say that, right? Yeah, hugely, right? Yeah. Well, it's been the experience of many, 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 many people through the, through the, through the centuries. I mean, read Augustine's Confessions, right? Just read Augustine's Confessions. He's at the top of his game. He's the, he's the chief orator of, of Milan. Everything's going seemingly great. He has good friends. He doesn't work that hard. He gets to hang out in country villas of friends and benefactors and drink wine and eat good food and, and basically rest all the time because that's what you do when you're the orator of a big city, right? His life is good. He's got a steady girlfriend. Uh, you know, he's got all these things. He's got a kid that you know, he loves and he thinks is great. And, but there's, some, there's, there's turmoil underneath him. Um, and it's almost like when he starts to see the things of God, that turmoil is further illumined and he's not, he doesn't escape it. It's worse. And I think that's actually largely what, what we experience in conversion, don't we? There's this kind of like, you're, you're relieved of the burden of having to think that everything is going well, if it is, if it seems like it is. And you start to realize, like, things are not going that well. Um, I've known a lot of people through the years. A lot of people through the years. One in particular that I can think of really strongly if you saw this guy, you would just say, wow, what a great life. This guy was actually known among the car dealers in town as like, if this guy shows up, he's going to buy a car. He's going to buy the most expensive one. So be ready. And he had a beautiful family, beautiful house. I mean, everything's good. And yet, when I would sit down with him, I would learn very quickly how miserable he was. Most people just won't tell you. I find that too. Um, I speak as one who hears people confidently and in confidentiality tell me their sins. Nobody's got it that good. Really and seriously. Everybody's got a burden. If, and this is the other part of it too. There's a subtle twisting. I know I'm going on way too long, but I want to get to this. This is really important. 
I tell people this all the time. When, if, if you ever come to me and say, I'm really struggling with envy, one of the first things I'm going to tell you is, who do you envy? And tell me how great their life is, and then I'm going to tell you what it's actually like to be that person. Or maybe give you an idea of what it's like. I mean, it's as simple as this, and I'm, I'm building a scenario that doesn't actually exist, but, but, but one of you comes to me and says, hey, you know, I think I'm going to have to find a new place to sit in church. Well, why? Because I normally sit by her, and she has this beautiful singing voice, and I always find myself, like, envying her. Okay. Well, you should try sitting somewhere else if you can't just... You know, but, but the other thing that I really want you to think about is, like, did you ever think about what it might be like to be her? And they say, but she's got this, like, great family, and everything's, everything seems good. And, and, and I just say, friend, if you really knew what her life is like you wouldn't want it. You wouldn't want it. Um, and I've often, I've often been confronted with that directly um, in my life, where, where I will think that the sun shines out of someone's butt, okay? I really will. And I will think they have a perfect life. And then I'll sit down and talk with them. And, and first thing out of their mouth is, after I'm really inviting open honesty is like things are not going well. Okay. Why? Because the outward appearances are deceiving. Yes? Always. They're always deceiving. Um, well, we know this. We, this isn't directly in Scripture, right? Does God look on outward appearances? So why do we? God looks on the heart. He's really interested in the heart. Deeply interested in the heart. And, and when you get down to that level of a conversation with somebody, and you're asking, like, what's it like in your heart? It's not good. Um, it's not good with me. Like, I mean, I, listen. I'm a sinner just like anybody. If you ask me, like, is your life really going well? I'll say, not always. You got a lot of, I mean, like, listen, my family sees a team of counselors, okay? Because we're, we're trying as hard as we can to find health in the midst of really awful circumstances, just that have piled up generational sin, all sorts of stuff, right? And I'm just going to be blunt and honest and, and, and vulnerable with you and say, like, there's a lot of crap behind what you see on a Sunday morning. But what do I got? I have the hope that comes from having the Holy Spirit dwell inside me. I have the joy of knowing that, that all of this garbage is not for nothing. That, that God is loving me and calling me and sanctifying me in the midst of it. Yes? And if I was anybody else with any less of faith, I would say God hates me. That's just how it is. Because of how bad it's been. And how awful I've been. Okay, so I want you to hear that. Okay. Can you save yourself from the way of sin and death? <laughs> no, I have no power to save myself, for sin has corrupted my conscience, confused my mind, and captured my will. Only God can save me. Okay. Uh, there's, a, there's a really awful heresy uh, that I want you to kind of know about, and it's called Pelagianism. It was by a, by a 4th century, 5th century English writer, some of the great anti-Pelagian writings are, are from Augustine, but many others as well. And their response is this. 
if you could save yourself, there would be no need for the gospel. Not at all. And in fact, God would expect you to save yourself if you could. So we actually have this teaching about this thing called prevenient grace. It's grace that goes before. So before you even think about any of that stuff, right? Before you even think about the gospel, before you even ponder the person of Jesus Christ, before you're even born, right? What does God do? He's working. Um, as you walk out of the church today, look at that window there. I love that window. It's the depiction of Jesus saying, this is from Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and... Come on. Starts with a K. Knock. <laughs> I knock. I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens to me, what will I do? I will, I will come into them. I will be with them. Who makes the first move? God in Christ makes the first move. He's knocking at the door. He's standing there at the door. And, and what is, what is, how does the door open? Any of you in construction know this. You have to get the door right. Which, which, door, which side is the handle on? And which way does it open? Right? There are four different, four different configurations. You have to get the right one. Okay? This one, the door opens from the inside. But who makes the first move? God makes the first move. How, do you, how are you even able to do it? Because God is giving you grace. Okay? We have no power. We have no power to save ourselves. I have no power to save myself. For sin has corrupted my conscience. Okay, what's, what's a conscience? I'm probably running over. Oh, no, I'm not. Good. This is great. What's a conscience? We've got to have somebody who knows some Latin in here, don't we? I know we do. What's a conscience? Conscientia, with knowledge. Yeah? Okay. So this is where guilt kind of resides, right? It's also where doing the right thing resides. What is it? I know about what it is that I'm doing. I know what the effect is. I might not know all of it, but I know what it does. And my conscience has been formed from a very early age. From the moment I first punched my brother in the gut, I've known this, that I should not do that. I was formed in this. I was actually formed to have a sick feeling when I even think about that. My conscience was formed. So, but, but here's the problem. What's, what's the problem with the conscience? Do you know the full effect of every action you take? Not even close. Not even close. I remember uh, I, I buried an old man who was uh, a, a pilot in World War II, and he used to fly sorties over Germany and Italy. And uh, on the day of his funeral, his sons were talking about him, and they, and, they, and they told the story that he was once flying over Germany, and uh, he, got, he got caught up in, in a firefight and didn't have enough fuel to get back as long as he held on to his ordinance. And so through the radio, he was told by his captain, or whoever it was, drop, drop them all. And he blindly dropped them over Germany. This stuck with him for the rest of his life. He bore this guilt. He bore this conscience, this problem of his conscience. For decade after decade, he was 86 when he was finally dead. And he did this at 22, 20, it was like 23 or 24, he did this. 
And this guy, I'll never forget it, every Sunday he would come up for communion and he would put his head down as far as it would go as he knelt at the rail. And I never knew why. Because he bore this problem on his conscience that he just could not rectify. Did God love that guy? Absolutely. Absolutely. But he, he never knew. He never knew. He would never get that privilege, ever, of knowing how many people he killed that day so that he could live. Did he do the right thing? I don't think he, think, I don't think he thought that. I don't think he had any way of thinking that. But you see, he knew. He had a knowledge. And, and knowledge is a good thing, right? And sometimes it's a big burden. What happens to our conscience in, in the state of sin? I'd say two things. Maybe several all at once. We don't actually know how devastatingly bad our actions are. Right? I mean, there are things that you have done in your life where if it could just be revealed to you how much damage you caused, you would be horrified. Because you actually don't see yourself rightly. At the same time, there are ways in which we think we did some good and we didn't really. We think we were, we think we were doing it right and we just, we just weren't. Um, so we have to be reminded of this. My conscience has been corrupted. I don't see myself as I really am. I, I don't know myself well. Um, confused my mind, right? Ask any addict. Ask any, I mean, like, by the way, AA meetings are open. You can go sit in if you want. Like, if you, if you need a dose of reality, like, just go sit in an AA meeting or whatever it is, whatever addiction you want to kind of hang out with. Okay. Talk to an addict. Say, what's it like? And, and they will tell you every single time. I was confused. Like, right was left, left was right, up was down, down was up. I was confused. I didn't know what was what. I had deluded myself into thinking that everything was right, that everything was good, that I had it right, that I was, that I was doing the right thing, that I was following the right way. That, that, and, but I was delusional. And denial isn't just a river in Egypt. You know, it's that kind of thing. I don't see it. I don't know it. I don't get it. What has to break through? I have to come to the end of my mind and its ability to grasp things. I have to come to the end of my knowledge. I have to come to this place where I, don't, where I know I don't get it. Where everything's gone wrong. Um, and, and for some people that's elusive, isn't it? We're really dwelling on this. This is fun, okay? And captured my will. What's the will? We're going to get into old ancient philosophy here for a bit. What's the will? Do you even know what the will is? Come on. Yeah, that what chooses, right? So, like, the will is this thing that, that um, whatever it is, it's, it's, what's, it's what sits in us, and it's, and it's where our conscious, our conscious decisions are made, Right? Um, and and actually is actually um, seated in our desires and affections, not our mind. Okay? Um, there have been very good books written about this, both in the ancient past, but also now. There's this wonderful book that I'm encouraging really anyone to read, which is Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. And he proves in that book, it's a wonderful book on psychology, that we actually do, we are not rational actors. We do not act rationally. We act upon our deepest intuitions. 
and then we reason as to why we did them. We reason ex post facto all the time. We choose something, right? We say, my intuition tells me this is what I need to do, and then a day later or 10 minutes later, we start to say, okay, and this is why I did it. Let's make up a reason. Like, let's figure out why, we, why I did it, right? Um, and he uses the analogy, we're essentially like big old elephants, right? We're, we, we, we go entirely by the smells that accumulate in our trunks. Have you ever watched an elephant do this? It's amazing. Elephants, you know, they're enormous, right? They're huge. And they don't move very easily. They can run, and it's kind of amazing when that happens. But, but what happens? They, they, they reach forward with their trunk, and what do they do? Ooh, good smell, right? What do they do? Right? Ooh, water, right? Ooh, tasty, tasty, tasty leaves, and they go right to it. You see? We're like that. We, we follow our nose. We follow our affections. We follow our desires. We do this all the time. And it's one of the great contributions of, of uh, Christian believing, which is not just that we like, made up this new way of living, but that we've actually, actually preserved something in the ancient past which, which is so good. Right? Look, I'm just going to lay all my cards on the table. Kant, despite all the fun things he wrote, was dead wrong. Dead wrong about this. Nobody sits there in their mind and reasons, what should I do? How should I act? What should I say? Um, we, none of us do this. Almost all of us are driven by our intuitions and by our, by our immediate emotions. We're driven by disgust. We're driven by love. We're driven by, like, that tastes good and that tastes bad. Right? And later we'll make up a justification. Right? Why am I eating this cake? I know it's bad for me. Right? I know it's bad for me. Why am I eating the cake? Because it tastes good, right? And I want to eat it. Okay? Oh, I know I'm not supposed to eat this fruit. Why am I doing it? I don't know. Because it looks good. This is literally in the third chapter of Scripture. It's because it looks good, and it looks like it'd be good to eat, so she eats it. And probably later, she's reasoning in her mind why I did this. But it doesn't say that she reasoned towards that, that thing. We never do this. We always do it after. We think, why did I do that? Well, I did it because of this. Why did I eat the cake? Because it was tasty. And then it's like, well, I did it because I've been really good lately and I've been eating very healthily and, you know, one day is not going to kill me. And, you know, it's just one thing after another, right? So why am I saying all this today? Why am I railing on and on and on about this? Because I want you to see before we get to, uh, to the reconciliation, which is ours in Christ and which is yours in Christ. And if you've not known it, that it can be yours in Christ. Um, just how bad it is. Just how devastating this is. I mean, this is... At the end of the day... What, I, what I'm saying is absolutely dead on, and it's what Scripture says. You're, you're dying. You're dying. And you can't do anything about it. There's not a thing in this world that you can do to save yourself. And you know it. This is what's really wild. At the end of the day, you actually know this because you've tried and tried and tried. You've put forward great effort. And maybe some of you are like, I've tried and then I just gave up because it wasn't worth it. And maybe some of you are like, I'm still trying. I'm still trying. I'm still striving. I'm still trying to figure it out. And maybe someday I'll get it. And you know what the answer is? By your own power, you're not going to. You're dying. You've got a terminal diagnosis. 
And what happens when you get a terminal diagnosis? Do you say, how am I going to eat better so that I can save myself? You say, like, what am I going to do? What do you do? You say, okay, doc, what do we do? You, you look to the one who knows you better than anybody. Knows your body, knows what it does, knows, what it, knows how it functions. And you say, what do we do? Um, that, that's the point where grace starts to work, right? That's the point, and it's already been working, right? So I will say this, just as we break up. You may have been a Christian your whole life. Good, glad. The reason you're here right now is that God called you to be here right now. The reason you're doing the very thing you're doing right now is that God wants you here. Not because of me, not because I'm such a great teacher, but because God wants you here and not someplace else. And you, and you man, he, he blessed you with his grace and a calling and, and whatever it was, you didn't resist it because you're here, okay? And, and, and the rest is to say, lean into that. Um, this is at the heart of catechesis, is this, is this, let me just say this. If you missed last week, okay, I'm going to wrap up in one minute. Catechesis looks something like this. It's like what happens when I talk into a cave. What happens when I talk into a cave? I say, hello, and you hear on the other end, hello, 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 hello. It's very faint. And then I say, hello, and it's hello. You know what I'm talking about, the echo, yeah? Okay. Catecheo is actually closely related to this word echo. It's, it's, it's this... God speaks into the emptiness of human life. Yeah? He speaks by His Holy Spirit. And what bounces back? Because we're made in the image of God. Hello! 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 Right? We, we, we resound back with praises of God. Because we're made to. Um, and, and what we find is that this word is foreign to us. It's, it's just not who we are at the end of the day. It's, we're, we're, we're corrupted to a point where it's, it's unrecognizable. But God has still made us that in the emptiness of sin, in the emptiness of this deadly state we're in, what happens when He speaks into us? We resound back with His praises. So my hope for you is that, is that through this time of catechesis, that this, this, even if you've come, especially if you've come, empty, what would happen? That, that the praises of God would just bounce off you. They bounce out from inside of you. This is what, this is what catechesis does. Um, I'm a mouthpiece for this. I'm going to speak into you, and hopefully what will happen is, um, and I, I pray it will, and I know it will, these will start to bounce back out. Okay? Um, so I'll leave you with that thought. We'll begin in a bit.